May we and all beings embody wisdom and compassion. May we and all beings find comfort in mushy boundaries. And may we and all beings tend to each other as parents to their children. Good afternoon again, everyone. And welcome to the first full day of practice for our spring session. The occasion of which is Vesak, Buddha's birth. As you can see over on the altar, we have a baby Buddha enclosed. Tomorrow we'll be bathing the baby Buddha in a special ceremony. So this is the occasion for which we gather today and over the next several days to celebrate the birth of the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, our particular Buddha and in whose Buddha field we reside a field of infinite possibilities. But there's a theme that we'll be exploring too, in addition to celebrating the birth of the Buddha. And we might call this theme the meaning of Bodhisattva, or the place of the Bodhisattva in our practice. The great tradition in which we practice, the Mahayana tradition, has at its center this figure of the Bodhisattva. And one of the wonderful things about the Mahayana tradition is that all of us can and are Bodhisattvas. Those who can have that title, if you will, are not restricted to some special class of individuals. but I don't know how much it is that we talk about what a bodhisattva is or who the bodhisattva is. It's a word that when you start to hang around Buddhist people, meditation people, silly Zen people comes up a lot. I was thinking about the First time I started practicing with a group, practicing with a Sangha, um, I was living in California at the time. And when you become involved in any new group, there's a little bit of a vocabulary you have to pick up on. And one word that I noticed I really didn't understand, at least in that context, was practice. I met all these people one Sunday morning, all of whom were 30 to 40 years older than I was, all of whom had gray hair. I had none at the time. And all of whom wanted to talk about practice. They wanted to know what my practice was. What's your practice? See that person over there, that's their practice. This other person over here, they're doing this other practice. What's your practice? Do you have a practice? Practice, practice, practice. 
And here too, we sometimes talk about practice a lot. What is our particular practice as those who find ourselves in the lineage of Kobun Chino Roshi? What is our practice here at Owan when newcomers come for beginning instruction? Do you have a practice? Tell me about your practice. So in the same way that I found myself asking that Sunday morning, what is a practice? What is it to have? I don't think I have one. Trying not to fall asleep, maybe? <laughs> um, for the next several days, we'll be exploring the questions, what is a bodhisattva? And who is the bodhisattva? Who is this being? What is this being that's at the center of our particular spiritual path and that we are all at least candidates for being, if not already are? There's many ways to approach this pair of questions, and one approach is to look at the sutras and see what the sutras have to say about bodhisattvas. And that's the approach that I've decided to take today, and I'll continue with on Monday. I'm going to be talking about a particular sutra, sometimes called the Vimalakirti Sutra, or the sutra that Vimalakirti speaks. It's a very entertaining sutra starring a whole interesting cast of characters. Some of them you might be familiar with. We have many of Buddha's senior disciples. Shariputra shows up, for example, and gets made fun of. There's a goddess. There's Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. And the Buddha's there too. He's sort of in the background. But it stars none other than this individual Vimalakirti, who is a layperson, just like all of us. He doesn't live with the Buddha in a grove, exclusively practicing all the time. And he's also a bodhisattva. And one of the things that I find so interesting about this sutra is that although Vimalakirti does a lot of talking about what a bodhisattva is, he's also modeling it for us in his behavior. We get to see it in word and action, one representation of what it is that a bodhisattva is. I'd like to put a little bit of flesh on the bones of Vimalakirti, I'd like to color in the picture a little bit for you, tell you a little bit about this particular individual. Here's how he's introduced to us early on in the sutra. Vimalakirti is one who has penetrated the profound way of the Dharma. He has conquered all demons and opponents. He lives with the deportment of a Buddha, and his superior intelligence is as wide as an ocean. 
He has all these sort of superhuman traits about him. But then it starts to become, from my point of view, more interesting. He's described as someone who observes a pure morality in order to protect the immoral. He maintains tolerance and self-control in order to reconcile beings who were angry, cruel, violent, and brutal. He blazes with energy in order to inspire people who are lazy. He wears the white clothes of a layperson, yet lives an impeccably religious life. He lives at home, but remains aloof from the realm of desire. He has a family, a son, a wife, attendants. He's sometimes adorned with various ornaments. He seems to eat and drink, yet always takes nourishment from the taste of meditation. He makes his appearance at fields of sport and in the casinos, but his aim is always to mature those people who are attached to games and gambling. He visits fashionable, heterodox teachers, but always maintains unswerving loyalty to the Buddha. He engages in all sorts of business, but doesn't have interest in profit or possessions. To serve living beings, he appears at crossroads and on street corners, and to protect them, he participates in government. To serve children, he visits all the schools. To reveal the evils of desire, he enters brothels, to help those who are drunkards, he enters the cabarets. He's admired among warriors because he cultivates endurance and determination, among aristocrats because he's without vanity and arrogance, and compatible with ordinary people because he appreciates the excellence of ordinary merits. And the list goes on and on, and on. Vimalakirti is someone who lives in this world. This dusty, topsy-turvy world, just like we all do. He's not often a monastery or again, off in a grove. He's right here, where we are. He goes to sporting events. He has a house. He spends time with his family. He serves his community. But we might say that his orientation is just a little different from many people. In this description, we notice a certain uprightness about him. He goes all of the places that ordinary people go, but he doesn't always behave in the way that they do in those places. He maintains an unswerving commitment to the teachings, 
to practicing the Buddha way, whether he finds himself on the cushion at home in solitude or in a bar surrounded by drunkards. And when he's in all these various places that we tend to frequent, he's not scolding the people that are there, gambling their money away in the casinos, getting ramped up over the NCAA Final Four. He's not sitting in the quarter brooding, thinking about how much better he is because he has a spiritual orientation or dimension to his life. But he's continuously encouraging all of them to cultivate their lives in a particular direction. To embody wisdom and compassion. To be generous. To be upright. To be patient. To exercise great effort. To sit. to cultivate understanding. He's constantly in service of all beings. Sometimes directly, sometimes not, just by being who he is. His presence alone is enough to inspire others to give their time and energy to the path. And there's something else. He's sick. Vimalakirti, as a particular instance of what we might call the bodhisattva ideal, is sick. And so far as I can tell, he's always going to be sick. The Buddha knows that Vimalakirti is sick. And so he sends some people to go check up on him. Go see how Vimalakirti's doing. I hear he's sick. And when the party arrives to see how Vimalakirti's doing, whether or not he needs a bowl of soup, they find him, this great person, Vimalakirti, sitting in a 10-foot square room on a sickbed. And they ask him, Vimalakirti, whence came this sickness of yours? How long will it continue? How does it stand? How can it be alleviated? What's going on with you, dude? How can we help? Here's what Vimalakirti says in response. We're all living beings free from sickness. I would also not be sick. Why? For the Bodhisattva, 
The world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in the living world. Were all living beings free of sickness, the bodhisattva would also be free of sickness. But as it is, all living beings are sick, so I am sick. I am sick because all beings are sick. The Bodhisattva is sick because all beings are sick. I don't know about you, but I don't know what that means. I have some thoughts, and I'd like to share them with you. But at a first pass, you've got to tell me more, Vimalakirti. What could you possibly mean that because all beings are sick, you are sick too? So here's my best guess at how to understand this. The Bodhisattva is sick, Vimalakirti is sick, because all beings are sick, because the relationship between all beings and the Bodhisattva is an intimate relationship. So much so that the condition of the one, all living beings, greatly affects the condition of the other, the bodhisattva. How do we understand this intimacy because of which when one is sick, the other is sick? One way of understanding it it seems to me, is to say that the relationship between them is an empty relationship. Not empty in that there's no relationship there, but empty in the sense that there's no separation between them. There's not some hard boundary that keeps Vimalakirti keeps the Bodhisattva from being affected by all beings. Sometimes we think that there is this hard boundary. We talk about it being the self sometimes, that small self, that constructed self, the ego. We think this is where I stop and that's where the rest of the world begins. And I'm sort of here in my own little bubble. And what happens out there, sometimes it might affect me. But I can stop it if I want to. As we live a little bit, we realize that we really can't stop the world from having an effect on us. Because although we think that there's this separation, there's not. 
the relationship between us and all beings is an empty relationship in which there's not separation, but there is difference. I'm different from all of you. Each of you is different from the rest of the individuals in this circle. But we're not separate from one another. The boundaries between us, as I said in my opening dedication, are mushy. They're permeable. They're flexible. And constantly changing as the circumstances of our life constantly change. Another way of thinking about the intimacy of this relationship between the bodhisattva and all beings is that it's a deeply interconnected relationship. To borrow an expression that Thich Nhat Hanh was fond of using, this is like this because that is like that. All living beings are sick in a particular way. So the bodhisattva is also sick, maybe in the same way. You might be wondering at this point, what are all living beings sick with? And I'm happy to say a few things about that. According to Vimalakirti, ignorance, which leads to craving, is the cause of the sickness. Ignorance of what? That you're not really separate from all that is. That this self, this small self, this constructed self, this ego, that you cling so tightly to at times is nothing more than a mere construction that serves as a barrier at times to you connecting with others in this intimate way. From there being this barrier that arises from, their, from the tight grasp on a small self. There comes a craving, a craving to get what we want and to never meet with what we don't want. Sometimes we call this aversion. There's a craving for pleasure, to satisfy our desires, for fame, for praise. And there's a craving to do away with pain and the frustration of our desires and obscurity and blame so that we can feel safe. Something in my own life that I've experienced all too well is that when I feel cut off and separated from others, I don't know that I can trust them. I become afraid, in some cases, very afraid. And I start trying to do everything I can to reinforce my own position so that I can feel safe again. 
because I don't know if I can trust what's out there, what seems to be separate from me. This is what all beings are sick with, this illusion of a separate self. If this talk about an empty relationship or an interconnected relationship seems too abstract to you, here's perhaps the best way to understand this intimate relationship between the bodhisattva and all beings. This is the example that Vimalakirti himself gives. It involves a parent and their child. When the child of a parent is sick, says Vimalakirti, his parent becomes sick on account of the sickness of their child. Just so, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if each were his only child. The Bodhisattva becomes sick when they are sick and is cured when they are cured. Those of you who have been parents know exactly, I think, the kind of sickness we're talking about here. And those of us who have, may not have been parents to human children, but to fuzzy four-legged friends, can also know the kind of sickness that we're talking about here. When your child is sick, you, as a parent, are affected by that because of the intimacy of the relationship between you and your child. If your child has a cold, you might also be sick with a cold, but that's not the kind of sickness that we're talking about. We might call it a sickness of concern, sickness of care. Maybe even to call it a sickness isn't quite right. But you're moved because of your relationship to your child to try to help them, to try to ease their suffering. Do they need some soup? They need their foot up, an extra blanket, a cold towel on their head. What can I do to help you? And you know that once your child is better, you will be better too. This sickness that you experience because of the condition of your child will be lifted. But not before. Not before. What this last way of understanding the intimate relationship between the Bodhisattva and all beings suggests is that the Bodhisattva's sickness 
is not the same as the sickness of living beings. For living beings, they're caught up in ignorance because of which there's craving and because of which everything else follows. The hindrances of attachment and aversion, restlessness, boredom, and doubt. Or they're caught up in the eight worldly winds, which I mentioned earlier. But the bodhisattva is free of that kind of sickness in just the same way that you as a parent might be free of the particular condition that's affecting your child. You don't have a cold, and so you can help them. You can help them see their way through that condition because you know that it comes to an end. You know that in time it will pass. We just need to do certain things to get you back on your feet. But this is only part of the story for why the Bodhisattva is sick. Yes, the Bodhisattva is sick because all living beings are sick, but Vimalakirti also says that the sickness of the bodhisattvas arises from great compassion. The sickness of the bodhisattvas arises from great compassion. At this point, one wants to know what great compassion is. We're not going to talk about that today. Come back Monday. We'll pick up the story then. Thank you very much.